Hello, and welcome to another episode of Musical Health, the podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Crater, and today we're going to be talking about trauma-informed care. Now, trauma-informed care is a lens from which you can view your practice. Think of it as a guidepost or a framework for which you can use in your practice. So you can be a trauma-informed care teacher, you could be a trauma-informed care physical therapist, a trauma-informed care um, medical provider. So trauma-informed care is not unique to one profession, yet we can all benefit from having trauma-informed care in our practice. So today I'm going to specifically be covering what trauma-informed care is and the ways in which trauma is created in our lives and how it's processed in our brains. We're not going to really be getting too much into any types of music-based intervention this episode, but really this episode is to prime you for future conversations and to start thinking about ways you can be more trauma-informed in your own practice, whatever that may be. This episode is by no means comprehensive, but more of an introduction. Because this topic is so giant, um, I'm going to be infusing trauma-informed care topics throughout the year, so look ahead for those. So whether you've heard of trauma-informed care, whether you're currently practicing as a trauma-informed care clinician, or maybe it's your first time hearing the term trauma-informed care, Buckle up because you're going to hear the term about 50 more times in this episode. (laughs) So I think this episode will still have something for everyone, whether you're new or an expert. The one of the key elements of trauma informed care is the continuation of knowledge and understanding. So let's get into it. Trauma-informed care is essentially a way of understanding. So trauma-informed care understands and considers the pervasive nature of trauma. That's to say the way in which trauma presents itself in so many ways within our body's ability and our mind's ability to process stress and to manage emotions. Trauma-informed care also acknowledges that trauma is not pathological in nature, meaning that it requires a whole-person approach and not a disease-centric approach. So trauma-informed care pairs really nicely in your practice if you are already um, practicing from a whole-person, person-centered, or humanistic approach. A unique element of trauma-informed care is that it promotes an environment of healing and recovery rather than continuing to practice services that might inadvertently re-traumatize. So adopting a trauma-informed care approach is not just a singular technique or a checklist of things that you do and to become trauma-informed care, it really requires constant attention and awareness and sensitivity 
and possibly a cultural change at an organizational level. So the language that you use, the way you approach your patients within your practice. So think of trauma-informed, like I said, as a theory or a framework which can guide your practice. Today we're going to specifically try to understand trauma-informed care within the healthcare setting. And to do that, we're going to talk about a few different systems. The first is the system in which our body and our brains process trauma. So we're going to be talking about some hormones and how they impact our bodies and our brains ability to process trauma. We're also going to be talking about the nervous system and how fundamental it is to our lived experience and how sometimes when we have history of trauma, this system can be dysregulated. And then we're also going to be talking about the healthcare system and, and the ways in which the healthcare system is set up may not always meet the needs of patients with complex histories of trauma. And so we're going to be trying to put together some of the pieces of how we can be trauma-informed care clinicians within the healthcare setting. One of the key elements to trauma-informed care is that it requires a whole person approach. This is salutogenic. So when we use the term salutogenic, we're talking whole person. So that means the that person's history, um, their preferences, how they manage and perceive stress, and et cetera, et cetera. So you want to better understand their picture, a snapshot of who they are um, in order to provide care. Now, a pathogenic approach would be a disease-centric approach. So you're looking at, um, for lack of a better term, the problem and how to fix it. So you have the illness and you apply the medicine and then you have cured the illness. But a salutogenic approach understands that sometimes to, to cure the illness, you're actually traumatizing the patient. So we're going to be talking about um, trauma-informed care within healthcare, which they tend to kind of fight against each other, right? So like in healthcare, we manage the disease. So when we're wanting to infuse our practice and have it be more trauma-informed, there might be some mindset shifts that you'll notice, and they might take some time to rework in your own brain and your own thought process. And that's really why trauma-informed care is a theory that guides your practice, because you'll be changing and you'll be growing and you'll be learning based on some of the concepts we're going to talk about today and in future episodes. So how does trauma get created anyways? Well, each of us has our own unique range of tolerance. So trauma is not always the result of one big event, but it could be a combination of experiences. And your range of tolerance can be different at any point in time. So the state that your body is in at any moment impacts your ability to process and overcome stress. So um, this could change if you're, let's say, hungry or tired or sick. 
but as long as one system stays within their range of tolerance, most of the time we see that we have greater health and a better capacity to problem solve more effectively, and we have more resilience. So resilience is that ability to manage and overcome stressors. You've probably heard of the term polyvagal system. The polyvagal system is essentially a two-way street to communicate stress. This is where a lot of your body's ability to um, return to a baseline or to self-regulate, that's where a lot of these things are housed in. Um, So the nervous system responds to signals in the body from your environment. The system, your nervous system is processing signals in the environment that might be stressful or maybe it's a relaxing environment. Now the autonomic nervous system, so those are those automatic responses in your body, experience the environment and then it sends signals of safety or danger. So your autonomic nervous system is basically like, you know, let's say it's it's the survival secretary. So, you know, an event in the environment comes through and the ANS says, oh, this is safe or this is danger. And these signals really impact our relationship with others. Um, non-consciously, we're not, not always well, we're not cognitively aware of them. It's an automatic response. Um, so oftentimes your body is just going into Hulk mode and you are not able to cognitively um, prevent that, if that makes sense. So once we go above the threshold of stress, we engage in this Hulk mode. Um, some people call it switching to your monkey brain and we begin to go into these patterns that we've adapted based on our our fight or flight responses so this hulk mode takes over and when you're in hulk mode you cannot use your cognitive brain it's not a choice to go into hulk mode it's not a choice for our patients to fly into a stress response and not have the cognitive ability to to reason it's an automatic response it's not something that we choose to do i think that's one of the biggest points i can stress today is it's not a it's not a choice it's your body's natural response So once we're in Hulk mode, we're not really using our cognitive brain. And I say Hulk mode because for those of you who might not be familiar with Hulk, he's he's a character in the Marvel comics, and he's a brilliant doctor, Dr. Bruce Banner. And, you know, something happens. I don't really remember totally. There's chemicals involved. And he becomes the Hulk. So the Hulk is like this giant green rage machine who's very strong. Um, Some people might call him like a monster. Uh, He's a superhero because he uses his power for good. But he hulks out and essentially he can't be reasoned with. He just smashes everything in his path and he's just like Hulk smash. Um, genuinely and so he can't be really reasoned with or talked out of it but something that does help bruce banner transition from hulk mode back into dr banner mode is um calm speaking or listening to relaxing music so that can be true for our hulk brain as well when we're in that fight or flight 
response, we're not using our cognitive reasoning. So talk therapy here is not going to work. We cannot reason. But if we can focus on our breathing and get our bodies back into a more relaxed state, then we can start to use our reason and our logic brain. This fiery cocktail of stress hormones can push you above your threshold. So you get a dose of these hormones um, when you have stress and your each of our bodies metabolizes those things differently. So if you have had an optimal life history, you haven't had a lot of negative life experiences, your brains can metabolize some of these stress hormones rather quickly. Um, but if you have had a history of negative experiences and trauma, it can be much harder for your brain to metabolize this. And so, you know, you have someone who can handle a stress event. And even if you have an optimal life history, these stress hormones can still take about six hours to metabolize and for you to fully recover from stress. Now, if you have a history of trauma or you have a patient who has a history of trauma, this stress response, you it can take your body 30 hours to four days to fully metabolize that. So if I have a trauma history, my view of the world and people and relationships is, is pretty narrow and I'm not seeing the big picture because internally I have a, a stress environment. And this is a result of, you know, cues that have been given to your brain through your nervous system over time. So either through, you know, one large trauma event or multiple trauma events over time. And these suppressed systems can create poor quality and attachments, self-centered behaviors, poor understanding of social cues, and unsecure attachments. So... When we try to get correct behaviors from the Hulk, that is just absolutely, you know, we're not going to get those. We're not going to be able to reason with the Hulk. But if you want to connect outside of Hulk mode, then we have to focus on self-regulation. So learning and growing and creating sustainable change require self-regulation before we can start to go into those other processes. So when we're working with patients who have a trauma history, we really do need to focus on self-regulation first. To do this, you want to be more action and process oriented rather than emotional and logical. So when you, when you ask when you talk to someone, you can say, well, you got through this. What is the first thing you did to get through it? Not how did it make you feel? Asking about the action-oriented items will help to activate that logic part of our brain and activate that those reasoning systems. Because when we have patients with histories of trauma, they may be stuck in that Um, fight, flight, freeze sort of mode, and they're not really able to focus and process the world around them because their brains are on high alert. They're always looking for, oh my gosh, what's, what's that? Is that safe? Is that safe? And they're constantly judging their environment. 
But if we can help our patients self-regulate through breathing, through mindfulness, through music, through relaxation, we can help get back into that logic brain and that's where some of the growth will happen. So that's where some of the work and you can start to reason and you can start to use coping skills and talk about those things, but you can't get there until you get that self-regulation piece. There have been many forms of treatment um, for post-traumatic stress and for trauma Dating all the way back to the 1860s, some of the first writings on on stress and symptoms of trauma appeared. And really what history shows us is that symptoms are improved when you can get your body more relaxed. So relax the body, improve the symptoms. We have to calm the system down before we can move forward. So we, we want to help stabilize and regulate these processes in the brain that are, um, they're the ones that are giving our body signals about what to do when faced with stress. So we, we want to counteract those increases in neuroadrenaline, we want to reduce cortisol, and we want to really support and understand that sometimes our patients are going to be in higher arousal states and we have to move them to a more relaxed state before we can actually address some of the core causes of their trauma responses. So there's a few different um, phases when it comes to our adaptation, sin, sin, um, our adaptation and responses to stress. So we have the alarm phase when your heart rate increases and you're ready to fight or, 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 or fly, run away. Um, we have a resistance. So this is when we are actually fighting or fleeing. This is the action piece and things are elevated. We are bathing in stress hormones, y'all. We are covered from head to toe. We have um, pretty small reserves for these hormones. So this really, we want this to be a short burst. So historically, when you think about humans, um, back in the day when we were foraging and hunting, we may sometimes have had to run for our lives from large predators. So let's say, for an example, you're running from a bear and you see a bear and you're like, okay, heart rate increases, I'm ready to fight or I'm ready to, to run away. So you choose to run away. Then you're in the resistance phase. So you're actually running away. Your heart rate's elevated. You're getting a huge burst of adrenaline, which is helping you run away and get away from this bear. And you're just covered in stress hormones. So then you get to this exhaustion phase. And in this phase, you're more prone to illness and you're at a high risk when you're in this exhaustion phase. This is when you've gotten to safety. So let's say... You get back to your village and the bear is like, forget this, there's too many people around with spears and it goes away. And you're like, you guys, oh my gosh, I just survived a bear attack. And they're like, hooray, let is go, let's go, you know, unfortunately, let's go hunt this bear. I'm going to gloss over this part. And you like celebrate and you like hang with your friends. And you're like, woohoo, we survived the bear. So this is our stress response. So let's 
flash forward all the way to 2021 and your bear is different now. Your bear could be a difficult encounter with your boss. And so in that, your alarm system is going off in phase one, you're getting yelled at and you have to decide if I'm going to fight or if I'm going to run away. And then you move to resistance phase where you get out of that meeting and you're you're just covered in stress hormones from head to toe. And then in the exhaustion phase, you go back to answering emails and you're on conference calls and you've never had a chance to slay the bear and to celebrate. So our, we're constantly in this stress cycle and not able to resolve it. And your body doesn't have a chance to balance itself again before the next stress event. So we really cannot treat our patients until we balance their system and help to regulate it through proper treatment. So your body plays a huge role in whether you are experiencing your environment as stress, but the environment plays a large role in the trauma experience as well. And when the body can't adapt, the body can create space between what the body experiences and what we perceive. So when you can't adapt, you try to remove yourself. So if you have someone with a large history of trauma, you might not be able to start right away with unpacking everything and getting rid of that 100-pound weight that they've been carrying, but you want to start with five pounds first. Um, And you want to connect to things that they can physically hold on to around them and help them connect to things outside themselves um, and then also help to teach self-regulation like breathing and things like that. So this is when we see the salutogenic process coming into really in, in the forefront. So you be, see a behavior and emotion and, and thought as a form of communication that reflects you know, how people are moving through different environments. And you're looking at it from a whole person perspective and you're getting information from each piece of that as opposed to that pathologic approach where the problem is, is has an acute single cause and it is within that person and if that can be patched up or fixed up, then everything will be better. But actually, there are so many layers to a trauma experience that that approach is not going to help in the long run. So because of the way that stress hormones work and sometimes take over our brains, like we've talked about with that Hulk brain, it is imperative that we first relax the system and help teach the system to relax. So once the body is regulating well, then we can apply different forms of therapy to help our patients in the long term. But we need to do that part first. And that part might take a while, especially if you are working in the setting that is causing re-traumatization. For example, if you're working with a patient in the hospital and it is some of the things that they have to do to help heal their physical body but by doing those things like starting IVs or going to x-rays and things like that if those things are re-traumatizing then it's going to be really really difficult for them to get back to a baseline 
So they that's when they need probably that extra support from someone else coming in and helping their bodies um, and giving them signals that they are safe and giving opportunities for their bodies to feel more relaxed. And this is why I was talking earlier about how incongruent trauma-informed care is in the medical setting because um, of the idea of dualism where you know you think you can separate the body from the emotions and this inadvertently really promotes a pathologic approach to resolving problems so because in the hospital setting we, we do have to solve the problem to save the life and sometimes to save the life we are inadvertently re-traumatizing or causing trauma but what we can do is to continue to take that salutogenic approach and continue to advocate for calm environments and we can come in and be a voice of safety and a voice that is going to help comfort a patient and give their body that signal that it's okay to relax, reduce some of those um, hormones like cortisol that is bathing their brains in stress and get them back to a better baseline where they can meet challenges and rise above the challenges. So trauma-informed care, the foundations of understanding are really neurobiological, so really understanding and having a good concept of how um, different things in the environment and different things that um, people experience can cause a stress response and how those hormones being released into your brain can have this ripple effect throughout your body. Our nervous systems are molded by our lived experiences. And this is a core concept for trauma-informed practice, to understand that our down down to our biology that our lived experiences will impact and shape who we are and when you're talking about the nervous system every response is in service to survival and sometimes those systems like we talked about will get wonky signals and get mixed messages But it all comes down to safety and stability have have to be there first before we can start to address some of and and um, rework some of those neural connections in order to have healthier and more sustainable responses to stress in the future. So if I have a trauma history, my view of the world, people, and relationships, that view is based on my narrow, um, based on a more narrow view because I'm not able to see the big picture because within my brain I'm living in a stressful environment. And if I'm still in that environment at home, it is really hard for me to make new connections um, and have new patterns of behavior because of those connections. For example, when you start your car, you are able to move. However, you do not need to release exhaust. When the engine is on, you create exhaust. Trauma therapy is about getting that engine to turn off. And so when you turn off the engine, then your system 
can relax and kind of breathe out and not have to continually make those long trips and, and overwork your system. So we have to get the engine to turn off and relax so that we can do the work. So trauma is created from lived experiences. That could be a major life event or it can be multiple events um, over time. And many of you have likely heard of the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. This study demonstrated that early life experiences put us on a path to poor health for years to come. And the higher the amount of adversity, the higher the impact on brain function and the development of your hormonal system. So these early adversity events can impact disease and ultimately can lead to early death. So the study found that the more negative childhood experiences uh, someone had, so those could be um, divorced parents, it could be um, abuse, physical or sexual, it could be a death of a loved one, any of there are a number of adverse events um, and then they showed that the more adverse events you had as a child the higher risk you were for developing heart disease cancer um, substance abuse and so on so many things that will ultimately could lead to an early death so why are these early life experiences so challenging to overcome when someone is having a trauma response, they're not asking themselves how to respond. Their brain is just responding. It's just doing it. Like if you've ever gotten in a car and driven somewhere and you just don't remember how you got there, but you got there. This is an automatic response. So they're having an automatic response. They don't want to go into Hulk mode. Their body is just signaling them to do this. And this is because once a pattern is created and built over time, and once you continue to use that pattern, it is hard to unlearn it and learn new things. So at an early age, if you're experiencing adversity in your environment, you're making a connection. So your connection could be fight or flight, whatever it is. Perhaps in the home, you're around a lot of yelling and you're you learn that if you hide in your room that you can't hear the yelling and the yelling eventually stops so you make this connection yelling run to my room yelling run to my room and let's say you've repeated that hundreds of times so from a neurobiology perspective you have your neuro connections being made because you've done this experience and then once you repeat it the myelin sheath around those connections is getting stronger and stronger and stronger so now if you as an adult want to pull apart that response that inability to handle you know people yelling wanting to run away you're going to have to relearn a new response and and build the strength of that response so it's very challenging to break those behaviors because they've been repeated so frequently and it's automatic. So it takes active work. 
And these patterns are built into our nervous system. They're built into like the very smallest, like little parts of our whole bodies. And that's why they say stress and toxic levels of stress can literally change your DNA. So when we have unhelpful patterns built over time, we need to get to a place where we can reflect on those system, systems. So we have to be in a cognitive brain to think about our maladaptive behaviors and responses and to relearn better responses. That all requires our cognitive brain. So when you talk about the ACEs study, adverse childhood events, a child's nervous system is looking for stimulus to create procedural templates in the brain. So if you think of the movie, um, gosh, I can't even think of it right now, with all the emotions and all the emotions have different people. So you have like joy and disgust and anger. So in our young brains as children, we're learning the ropes, so to speak. So it's like when you get a new job and they say, this is the template for, this is how we do X and this is how we do Y. So children are learning an internal guide Typically, these form before the age of three. So they're learning things like relational patterns, emotional patterns, cognitive patterns, and physical patterns. So all of this learning is happening. And if they're in an environment that is stressful, then some of those behaviors are already learned before the age of three. So thinking about how we can walk those back can be really challenging. So in the next episode, we're going to discuss some more implications of what we learned today um, in order to build trauma-informed music therapy practices. And we're going to do that by diving deeper into the ACE study, the adverse childhood events and, or experiences. And we're going to look at some current perspectives. So that study was done a number of years ago, and we're going to talk about where we are since then. So look ahead for more episodes like this in the future because the nature of trauma-informed care is that idea of continued learning. But today, I hope that you've taken away some things that you can start to think about. So you can start to think about how the system is not well set up for trauma-informed care. You can start to think about how automatic some of our responses are and how the in, how music therapy could be really useful with this population in terms of teaching self-regulation and also helping our patients get to a more relaxed state so that they can start to make healthier and better connections in their brain and they can respond to stressful events in the future. So thank you for joining me today as we took a little overview and a little tour of trauma and trauma-informed care, and we covered just a few of those um, neurobiological processing that is impacting um, people's experiences of stress. And next time, we're going to dive into the ACE study. So thank you again so much for joining me today, and until next time, be well, be musical, and I will be back. Thank mm-hmm. you.